This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Technical Director Peter Motzenbecker. Former Juventus coach discusses his work as a technical director and how he supports coaches within his programme, the development of game models and how this assists both players and coaches, as well as his work on the Twitter hashtag SundayShare and how he investigates the use of pitch markings both at the professional level and in his own sessions. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Peter, really appreciate you jumping on. Um, as I said, not not too early a start. I know the first the first time I gave to you would have been about three o'clock in the morning, which I don't think would have gone down <laughs> well with the family. But um, no, yeah, all good. Your end, yeah, all good. Um, yeah, it's not too bad of a start time. That's perfect, actually. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to obviously discussing lots of different things. Um, it's always good to connect with different people. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for the questions to come. Good. So I think, um, as, as I said to you before, kind of there's a couple of areas that really have interest in me. One is kind of your technical director role. Um, and then the other one being around a lot of the content you create, looking at strategies, tactics within football. So for people who maybe don't know you, don't know your background, you just want to give us a kind of brief oversight as to uh, what you currently do and maybe some highlights of how you've got there. Sure. So I currently work for a club called New England Football Club in Massachusetts. Um, and the club, like a lot of clubs in America, have multiple regions across, you know, maybe the state. So in our in our club, we cover pretty much the whole state of Massachusetts. But that's like a lot of different. Uh, it's a big state. So kind of geographically are pretty spread out and it's pretty condensed so it takes a long time to get from even across the city so um the club is split into different regions so my role is i oversee the technical stuff in one of the regions within the club which is about 500 players in my region i mean the club as a whole has about 2500 um so i look over maybe 20 coaches as a whole um and like i said 500 players and so they're i'm part of a technical committee within the club um because the club is kind of so spread out it makes sense to have multiple people kind of in similar roles that come together to talk about the things that are going on in their region um and i just joined nefc this past summer um I was at a club called Juventus, which is associated with Juventus Academy in, in, um, Turin, but this one's obviously an American based uh, group. I'm not really sure, you know, what the exact relationship is because I was there during COVID and usually they like Juventus would send coaches across and we would work kind of hand in hand with them, but that didn't happen. So I didn't get that full experience. Um, and before that I was at, uh, GPS Global Premier Soccer, which brings over a lot of um, UK and, and Irish coaches um, to work for them. So I experienced a lot of like different 
different people from um, kind of all over the world. I mean, they brought people from Eastern Europe over, South Africa, things like that. Um, so I was there for two and a half years, um, working my way up from kind of overseeing our region in terms of like just logistical stuff like scheduling and coach management and things to being the, the technical director of the club as a whole, which covered, um, I think they were in, you know, 30 states almost. Um, and that was like, I got that role right as COVID hit. Um, so every day during that period, I was like, I, I wasn't really doing like technical director stuff at that point. I was coming up with, we create like session plans for the players to do at home. So I was creating something new every day for the players, um, which was incredibly stressful time because COVID had just started. We were trying to like, you know, but yeah, that, I mean, that was my first kind of big kind of step into the technical director area was working for GPS in that role. And prior to COVID, it was, it was fun. Like, you know, working with the coaches, doing lots of coaches education, um, you know, just designing a, a way forward for the club. Um, I guess first question for me is kind of around technical director. So what does that role actually entail? Um, I guess the easiest thing is where you currently are. What what does that look like? What's your remit? Um, and, and how does that affect you on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so primarily my role is um, I, I work with the – I mostly work with the coaches um, kind of on an individual level. Um, so when I first joined NEFC, I, I had a, I had a meeting with every single coach that works for the region I'm in, um, to talk about where they felt they were as a coach, where they felt they could improve, where they wanted to go in their coaching pathway. Um, and so that kind of gave me insight on who everyone was, kind of what their ambition was. And from there, um, what I've done throughout the year is kind of help them develop to where they want to be as best as I can. So I've left a lot of it to them to come to me as the resource, but I also go out on the field um, with them. And the process I have right now is I'll record a session of theirs. Um, I'll ask them for feedback on like self-reflective feedback on, on how they think their session went. Um, I'll go in and I'll take data from the session. So I'll rewatch it and I'll, I have just an Excel document where I go in and I record every single interaction they have with the players. Um, so for instance, if they go in and have an, an intervention moment with, with the team, I'll categorize that as to how like the coaching methods that they used, whether it was like question answer, whether it was trial and error, et cetera. Um, I'll talk about whether their content, like the content they were giving was kind of corrective, whether it was negative, whether it was positive. Um, I'll talk about the, the people that they addressed. So whether it was an individual moment, whether it was a unit based or whether it was a team based uh, moment. Did they correct technical stuff? Did they correct tactical stuff? So I'll, I'll gather all that information for 
every single coaching moment, whether it's an intervention or in the flow. And I'll put it, I put it all in um, this document. And so that kind of helps them take my, and I'll also give them subjective feedback kind of on the session structure itself, um, on the coaching points they gave and the content of it. Um, and so we have, I'll give them that objective data and then the subjective, my subjective feedback. And we talk through it all. And we talk about their self-reflection. Um, and then we talk about, okay, so this is where we are right now. What are our next steps? What are your next steps? Um, so lots of, lots of the coaches will kind of see the data, especially like things like interventions, like the intervention time length. So I record the, the amount of time they're in for an intervention. Um, and they'll be like, okay, well, I want to work on getting my coaching points to be more concise and more to the point so that the ball is rolling more. Cause that's another metric that I, um, that I capture is the ball rolling time compared to the session stoppage. So we'll work on how they can progress towards maybe making sure that the ball is rolling more and how they can make their, their interventions more concise. Um, but it's just kind of a, you know, we just talk through it and we have enough of these with each individual coach where it's kind of a constant, a constant thing where we're always able to look at new data and see, see if they're moving in the right direction in terms of, their specific goals um so like i said there's there's 15 to 20 coaches in the region that i oversee so it takes a lot of time um and i coach two teams myself so every day i could be out on the field with working with coaches and working with my own teams um so sometimes just that amount of that volume is hard to hard to really have such a significant impact immediately. So I always came into this role like knowing it was going to take over a year to really implement um, not only making coaches better, but then a more cohesive kind of style of play, game model. So I think I'm in step one of making sure, trying to get coaches um, to a level where they want to be. And then kind of my year two process is to really work on implementing how we want the club to play, um, which is going to be a whole, whole different kind of challenge. But I think we're working in the right direction towards that. Okay, so we'll definitely get onto the game model stuff because I do see that floating around quite a lot on social media at the moment. I'm really interested in it. Um, in terms of the quantitative side, where did you get the frameworks for those interactions? So obviously you, you kind of go in and go, right, we're looking at um, type of interaction, ball rolling and stuff. Was there any particular framework that you used or was it experiential that someone had done that with you and you found that useful? Where did that come from? Um, some of it is, some of it's experiential, but some of, most of it, is from and i'm not going to remember his name um but he was and i don't remember his role either but he was at aston villa he was in their academy um he gave a presentation that i saw where he talked about kind of this exact thing um where he you know he talked about we go in every single session we record and we they live code it so i guess he has someone there that 
maybe works with Huddle or whatever it is, uh, live coding the session itself. Um, and so his framework is really what I worked off of. I don't have the same tools that he does, but the way he presented the data and um, kind of got it all together was basically what I, I designed mine based off of. So, and I, it's, it's bad that I can't remember his name because I've basically taken his work. Um, I'm not sure if he's at Astonville anymore. I think he was, I think he was going to move on, but he talked about how they were, you know, they were, they were starting to use like Google glasses to put on their coaches to like, just be able to see what they were seeing in a way. Um, so his ideas were very much like kind of the next level in terms of really educating his coaches. Um, I think that's a, that's a really yeah. interesting one, actually, because we talk about that with players don't we, in terms of where's their focus and ability of scanning. That's one that you hear, hear a lot. But yeah, um, I remember listening to a conversation, I think, with about what about Brendan Rogers. And he was talking about basically when the ball's up the final third, his focus is in the def- you know his defensive players. What are they doing? How are they set up and stuff, and looking away from the ball and vice versa. Um, and I think yeah, using those Google glasses that's able to track where your pupils go and stuff actually as a tool could be really interesting because it allows you to see what is the coach focused on. Is he just focused on where the ball's going all the time? Or is he yeah. actively spending time looking at the tertiary players around it and how they're affecting affecting the play? So I really like that idea. Um, yeah, it could it could be really useful kind of data to see you know what we as coaches actually focus on because um, I know we want. I think the thing about data is we we say a lot of things about ourselves as coaches, and then when we actually like sit down and whether it is just rewatching your self-coaching there's so many things that so many things that you see uh from yourself as a coach so you're like i did not think that i did that i thought that i did that better you know that was going to be my next question so obviously when you're using this quantitative data as, as a mirror going back to people and imagine that can at times be quite illuminating so is there any particular examples you've got where someone's self-reflection has kind of been dramatically changed by then you presenting them with this data um maybe yeah maybe just maybe and and this was me as well because i did my um my usb license uh this probably about a year ago now um and when i watched like we had to record our sessions a lot for that and i used to always think that like my intervention moments were, you know, nice and quick. I was in and out. And then when I rewatched my videos, I was like in there for way too long. And you could tell you, you look around the field, which you, you're probably not doing as a coach when you're in the moment, but on video, you're looking around the field and you're seeing, well, that kid, that kid's lost interest after 30 seconds. That kid's lost interest after 40 seconds. Oh, now you're losing them all. But yeah. So. There, I think that was probably been the the primary thing that I found from other coaches as well. Just like they used to think that they're more concise with their with their feedback um, in intervention moments in particular, and you know the data shows that well you're in there for two and a half minutes and you've just lost everyone's attention. Um, that's probably been the biggest kind of 
take away from all the coaches um, is just that that piece in terms of making sure that you're keeping the attention of players and limiting your time within your coaching point and kind of trying to condense it while also providing the information that you need to. And how do you manage that? So how do you manage them um, either being more concise with their point or um, maybe not interfering as much so the ball that is rolling? Yeah, well, I, th- I think the I think the latter or the former there is probably more easy to coach uh, into coaches because lots of times when coaches do make stoppages, um, they veer away from the specific moment that they've that they've stopped and they start to talk about different things that are relevant but don't necessarily apply and that's where you start to see that length of um, time come into play right so can you give me an that, example of that oh you've put me on the spot now um so say say your center back gets the ball and you're looking to have them play into a midfielder okay great so you go in like a coach will go in and make the stoppage and you'll talk about maybe the midfield rotation and how you can free a player up in midfield um and that's fine. That, that probably wouldn't take that long. But then play, uh, coaches will start to talk about, well, how can the fullback impact that? How can the other center back, can the other center back be an option? And can we move the ball to the other center back and then create an option going forward that way? Whereas you stop because of a specific moment you saw with one center back having the ball and maybe the midfield wasn't doing something that you liked. Um, but now you've started to talk about, okay, well, if we don't see that, maybe we swing the ball to the other center back and see if they're the ones that can play the entrance pass. So it's kind of going away from you saw a problem in terms of your midfield, not making the right movements that you wanted to make to free a player up in there. But now you've decided instead of fixing that problem only, you're going to talk about, okay, um, now we need, now I'm going to give you another solution and another solution and another solution. So I think, just instead, like it's good to obviously provide players with numbers of different solutions to a problem, but in terms of being able to to coach them, I think you need to stay on a specific moment and work on the specific problem that you saw, and then allow them to try and implement that. And then if you see another problem, okay, our midfield is rotating well, but now the defensive team has adjusted to that. So now what can we do to do to open things up? Um, so yeah, rather than giving like three or four or five solutions to a problem, just focus on the specific problem that you saw, um, kind of limits the amount of time you're in there. And so that's been like a, a big focus of getting, getting across to the coaches is make sure you coach what you actually saw and fix that issue, um, rather than trying to fix everything else as well. And in terms of the, the intervention styles, have you seen a lot? Is it heavily weighted toward one style or one type of intervention, or does that vary from coach to coach? Uh, it's definitely it's definitely more question and answer, um, which is good. And I think a lot of that comes down from the the federation. Um, when you go on coaching courses in in the U.S., so much of what they want you to do is just continue to probe, probe, and probe the players for answers and so 
coaches definitely use question and answer a lot more than you know command or or trial and error and things like that um but then the next part of that is making sure that the questions are actually good questions um that lead to kind of a thought process for the players but that's definitely been i think if <clears throat> if i were to get all the data together that would be you would definitely see the question and answer being the the primary usage of the coaches in terms of how they're approaching those intervention moments. And I won't ask you to name an individual because it wouldn't necessarily be fair, but is there one in particular individual that you work with that you think uses a particular methodology or a particular style really, really well? Um, be that question and answer or command. Is there one that you could you can highlight in your head? You go, yeah, actually, they use this really well. And here's an example of how they do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for sure, there's definitely one or two coaches where, especially the question and answer and stuff again, because they've gone through kind of the federation courses and have been exposed to that in, in a setting where they're being, they're, they've already been evaluated based on that, where they go in and they're able to ask really pointed specific questions. Um, but it's all about, I think the success of that is all about kind of planning, planning the seed beforehand and kind of building up, um, building up to your questions from previous sessions as well. Um, it's really hard to go in and ask players questions if you haven't kind of talked about the topic beforehand um, and worked your way up to, to the topic beforehand. So. I think that's kind of the key to it is making sure that you're not overloading the players and, but also making sure that they have some cursory like information beforehand um, that allows them to, you know, feel successful in answering your questions. Do you have any individuals that maybe are outliers in the way that they coach? that could be positive or negative. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so I think one of the things to understand about American youth soccer in general is that um, there are so many, because it's very money driven, um, like I said, the club I work for has 2,500 players across the state um gps in massachusetts alone had close to five thousand. so you have to imagine the amount of coaches that you need to be available to coach those players is is extremely high and of course because of that you're going to get a variety of quality within your coaches and so the age range as well there will be some coaches who have coached for a long time and coached like did their primary coaching in an era where everything was very much command style and um my way kind of my way or the highway type uh coaches and now that that's not as effective because kids have changed players have changed um they need more of that transformational leadership and now so if you see those coaches on the field they're very identifiable 
um, you could see like the interactions between that coach and those players is an outlier at this point, um, which is good, I think. Um, cause I think the like, question and answer and things like that are much more effective in terms of player retaining information. Um, so yeah, you definitely do see outliers in terms of kind of older school types of coaches, um, throughout, you know, throughout definitely U.S. soccer, but I'm sure everywhere in the world still are, are coaches that are kind of stuck in their ways a bit and haven't kind of grown with, with the times and grown with how kids have changed. Yeah, I don't think it's just a U.S. problem. I think it's everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. So in, in terms of maybe challenging those behaviours, because obviously you've got to have a relationship with these people and you've got, you know, you want them to be themselves because of authenticity is one of the key aspects of, of of a good coach. How would you go around maybe challenging them to change some of their language or some of their practices so that it's maybe more aligned to up-to-date research or up-to-date children etc yeah um to be fair i think i think most coaches that i work with in particular are very and and this is probably more because of um the guy that oversees kind of the region and the club as a whole take bringing in the right people that are willing to be um worked with um but yeah, I, I mean, like working with coaches like that who are maybe a bit more, a bit more stuck in their ways a bit is, it's kind of give and take in terms of experience and knowledge sharing. Um, you have to be as open to what they're saying as you are hoping that they're open to what you're saying. So if I go in and have a discussion with a coach, it's a discussion first, right? I'm not just saying, you need to change your ways because X, Y, and Z. It's a discussion on why they do certain things. And then it's me saying, okay, well, this is how I, this is how I see things. And, and maybe that influences them a bit. Um, but I think, I think coaches become more aware of kind of like where kids are, especially coming out of COVID. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but just the other day we had, the club as a whole had um, a mental health professional talk to all the coaches about the impacts that they're seeing of kids coming out of COVID and, you know, anxiety is through the roof. Uh, depression in kids is through the roof. So like being exposed to more information like that um, certainly helps all coaches kind of understand where, where kids are coming from in terms of how we can best help them as not only players, but also as just kids. Um, so yeah, I think exposing, exposing coaches to that sort of information, um, is extremely helpful. And then going in and talking to them about why they do certain things and why we should be doing certain things as coaches is much more effective than just going in and being like, that's wrong. Don't do that. This is how you should be doing things. Um, and I think you get, I think with, with anyone, you're going to get more buy-in if you have a discussion about it and explain the reasons behind the methodologies than if you just go in and say, no, this is how we do it. And if you don't buy in, you're out.
Yeah, there is a um, anagram that I know for the fit in one, but I'm not, I won't say that on air. Which is basically for the coaches to fit in or off. So yeah, I know that companies do use that on occasion. So I get moving topics onto the uh, the game model idea, which is obviously something you're kind of doing this year. Do you just want to explain? I guess first and foremost, what game models are, and then how in your context you're looking around creating one that will then obviously be spread out along different coaches at different age groups and etc yeah um it's different it's it's so the personal the personal like game model that i've developed um is an ideal i mean game models as a whole are very idealistic in in this is how you want your team to play these are the these are the principles that you want. These are the sub principles that you want, etc. Um, and some of that has to be adjusted to the players that you have. But I think there's there's definitely a spectrum of um, rigidness that coaches have in terms of how they apply their game model. Um, in terms of the club, the kind of the club wide game model. It's an interesting thing because obviously the players have a variety of skill. Um, and on top of that, at most, our, our players train three times a week. So when you look at the detail that you can go into um, with players, it's not as substantial as it would be at a professional club. Um, I know... The Philadelphia Union here in the States have a residential academy. They train twice a day in the morning and the, in the evening, uh, doing a variety of different activities in each session. Um, but they go at least four days a week. So you look at the contact time that those players have compared to players that we have, is there's a significant difference. So our ability to implement if we were given the same game model to implement, theirs would be significantly, you know, they would have more success um, than what we are able to do. So part of part of what we try and do is provide our players a framework for decision-making and then touch upon, I mean, we have main principles that we want all teams to, to follow, but then those kind of sub-principles are a bit harder to get across to the, to the to the players, so that's where things kind of get fuzzy in terms of um, how teams implement it. And again, just even the ability to do so because of the limited amount of training sessions that we have with players. Um, in terms of a framework for decision making, what what type of thing are we talking about? Um. So. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to kind of um, put it into an easily digestible thing at the moment, <laughs> which isn't great. Um, but I think just in terms of like giving them kind of the freedom, I suppose it depends on the age group, right? So if we look at if we look at U nines, 
um, giving them that introduction to um, taking players on, but also thinking about how if you get stuck, what's your next, what can you do next with the ball? So if you've taken, if you can't take a player on anymore, if you're dribbling at someone, but you, just, you can't beat them, what's your next step? So introduce him to that. And then, um, you know, as they progress to the age groups, introducing them to, okay, so at U9, we were all about you taking a player on 1v1 as many times as you could. Um, and if you got stuck, thinking about plan B. Um, at U13, now you have to think about the risk and reward of taking a player on in 1v1 situations and does it help the team? Um, and is there a better decision that you can make that would help the team more than your individual self? So at like U9, taking a player on is, is what we want a player to do in pretty much all circumstances because it's helping that player grow as an individual, even if it's somewhat detrimental to the team, right? If a center back picks up the ball and they try and, you know, dribble past a center forward at U9, that's fine because we want them to, first of all, they're not a center back, right? They're just a player on the field at that age group. Um, they just happen to be a bit deeper than the rest of their teammates. Um, but a center back at U13, giving them that, okay, well, now you have a bit more responsibility to think about the team and um, the impact that your decisions on the ball can have on the team. And so you need to think about that risk and reward situation and whether it's worth trying to take this player on um, or whether you need to be more supportive of the team's goals as a whole um, and not obviously not conceding a goal in that situation. Um, I think, yeah, because so think... I've seen a lot of models before that will go down the, you know, you kind of dribble to your heart's content type of type mm -hmm. of situation where it sounds like just by adding in, but what next if you get stuck kind of allows that thought process of, okay, well, I'm dribbling. That's probably my go-to, but it might not be there. So what's next and kind of allowing them to make a decision about what's next and building up. So I guess it's just having that almost that extra bit of language to come in to go, we are dribbling. We know that we're going to encourage that, but what yeah. happens next? What happens if that's not on? What happens if over here, we call it a sweaty. So, you know, pass it to someone who's on the six yard box with an open goal. Or what happens if you're in a 2v1 or 3v1? Having that extra little bit of language turns it from a almost command action, which is dribble, to a decision, which is dribble, but what if? Or what yeah. about this type of situation? Yeah, I think a lot of that, like, so I coach a, the youngest team I coach is a U10 team. So to kind of, Give them, I do a lot of 1v1s all the time. Every single session I do 1v1s. But some sessions I'll do 2v2s just for that, that, uh, that piece of it. Um, okay. Well, now you have someone that you can use. So for those what if situations, if you're dribbling at someone and you decide, well, I can't get past this person right now. Well, now I have someone that I can work with. So 
I would say 100% of my sessions, I do 1v1s. 50% of them, I do 2v2s to allow for those players to be exposed to that. Because, again, I still want to encourage lots of dribbling in 1v1 situations. But I want to give them that what if and give them, like, not just throw them out on game day and be like, okay, now what if? But we've worked on 2v2s in training. So now you have a better idea of what to do in that situation. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I think that, as you said, having that as a like that little decision making elephant, elephant element makes a big difference um, to the players and what they're thinking as they're going into that, which is a big one. Um, what this links into, and I've got, yeah, excuse me, I've got your Twitter page open in front of me because I think some of this is really interesting. So. Ultimately, obviously, with the younger age groups, you're looking to build this up to 11-a-side football. Um, yeah. And what I think you do a really nice job of is kind of breaking down the different aspects of football into superiorities or particular tactical threads, etc. So I guess the first protocol for me is what made you go down this route? What made you produce this content? Um, and then what's the process for you? If I look at one in particular, is kind of how you've broken down different pitches in accordance to, mm. I guess, different team styles and how, how they look. I think you've got that Ajax on here, you've got Wolves on here, you've got uh, Man City and stuff on here. So, yeah, yeah, firstly, what made you get into that work? And then two, what's your process for producing a body of work like that? Yeah. Um, so I think I think the first the first one I did was on past spaces and, and channels um and for whatever reason like i was on twitter i was seeing like i was i was seeing a lot of content i was using those two phrases interchangeably and i was like at least from my understanding and you know correct me if i'm wrong twitter world but um those are very different terms for me um like half spaces are fixed area on the field um whereas channels are they, their, their reference point is the defenders on the field. Um, so I saw those two phrases being used interchangeably, and I was like, well, I don't agree with that. So I'm going I'm to put something out there that gives my point of view on it. Um, and so I've always kind of been, I've always enjoyed kind of graphic design in a way. Um, so I just decided, well, I already have, Adobe Illustrator, so I'm just going, 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 and make a a graphic on it. Um, and I think that first one like got a lot of views and things like that. So I just said to myself, "All right, well, let me challenge myself to kind of come up with something that each week, because I do the Sunday shares, um, and so I kind of challenge myself each week to kind of think of something that I'm interested in that I can that I can make kind of an illustration of." Um, and so maybe it's something that I'll see, um, on Twitter where someone's talking about a certain topic and I think to myself, okay, I'm going to delve into that. Um, the one with the, with the different fields across, you know, the different coaches and stuff that was because I was thinking about how I would break down my field and I was going around and looking at different examples of that. Um, I'm just just I think I carry on with this. Obviously, uh, uh, people can look at this on your Twitter. So, what's your Twitter 
uh, at so that if people do want to come and have a look whilst they're listening to us talk about this, it gives them yeah um, an opportunity. So what's your Twitter page or what your Twitter at? Uh, it's, it's at P-E-T-E Mutt, M-O-T-Z. Perfect. So we're all about defining the field, the examples, and what we've what I've got in front of me, which obviously I'll talk through with you, is kind of Ajax and Haag, Atletico Simeone, Liverpool Klopp, City, Guardiola, Salzburg, oh, Jastely, I'm going to butcher that one, Arsenal, <laughs> Arteta, Leipzig, Marsh, and Wolves, Lager. And what I think it provides a really nice representation of is how different coaches probably view their game models and how it fits in slightly different for them. So if I'm looking at this, for example, um, Guardiola is a classic one with the five five channels, if you will, with the wider channels yeah. and three down the middle. Then I look at someone like um, Arteta, for example, is working far more on a hor- horizontal plane um, and looking at that. So just whilst we talk about that, if people do want to drag that up, it gives them an opportunity to do so. So when you're watching a game, what, entice you to have a look at these individuals and then how that affected them but also how that affected you when you were thinking about defining your field yeah so that that was a big part of like so once I started to look at these uh kind of layouts you know the next step for me was to go in watch some games and like see if I could find like the reasonings behind these field layouts which is i think it's really difficult to do but some for some it's recognizable like and i think the literature out there on like guardiola in particular um you know like oh he doesn't he doesn't want more than three players within a vertical channel so some of that is pretty evident in games although like you know city even now like city overload wide areas like really well um so that three players in the channel thing is is a bit different <clears throat> but yeah you you look at someone like Arteta's who has like a lots of horizontal lines and you try and figure out well what information is that delivering to the players and and watching the games like is that is that just like lines of constraint is that like how is that being implemented in the game um I think it's difficult to kind of think about and figure out sometimes, but I don't know. You, you, you try your best to, to kind of see how it relates to their game model. And, and there were some, like, I think it was Saris or yeah. At Lazio. He's at Lazio right now. Right. Yeah. So I went to Lazio's field because I was like, well, sorry, has a pretty, pretty unique style of play in terms of like it's a rigid framework of like patterns and things like that so let me see what his um his field looks like um but it was just like a box around it was a box like around um the middle like the center circle and i was like there's no way that's like has any meaning i couldn't figure it out so i kept it off uh, looking at more, it maybe it, like it doesn't even seem like it is something that's related to his style of play. Looking at it more, it looks like it's just he's put. He has obviously it's a regular field with two 18-yard boxes, but then it looks like he just has an 18-yard box on either side of the halfway line that they probably just use for like different exercises within their training sessions. 
So looking at some of them, it was like difficult to figure out whether it was like, we've just painted the field this way because it's easy for us to set things up or whether it was actually related to, um, related to like how they want their teams to play. Obviously the ones I put on here are very much like related to how the teams want to play. Um, so, uh, again, I'll give especially... you choices because I don't want to pick okay. Don't want to pigeonhole you in an area that might be really tif- difficult to describe. But so I'm looking here, like Simeone's, uh, obviously is very, very narrow in here, kind of yeah. five channels within the 18 yard box and then two wide, so seven channels. And you also got Arteta's, which is uh, doing quick maths, eight horizontal lines across the pitch, which allows kind of segregates the pitch up. So for either one of those, from what you're able to obviously define what were you then able to see how that affected the way that they played or the way that they trained yeah well I think with Simeone that the I mean his teams are all about kind of compactness right and so um having kind of that rigid very narrow setup and having it on the field as it is in this in this example I think you can very easily see that how that transfers into their game. Um, I mean, they played they played a five five against Manchester City in the first leg of of um, the Champions League. You can see how I mean he's always been very compact in how he sets those teams up. Um, so I think that like and the wide areas the wide areas don't matter as much to him as the center of the field, which makes sense. Um, so designating those different areas and having the players know those reference points for when they shift across as, as a team, whether he's playing a back four or a back five, um, is really evident from the trainings field that they have here to how they implement it in the game. With Arteta, um, I think those different areas are obviously related to um, how how their lines progress together probably more defensively than than they do in an attacking setup. Um, but admittedly, I probably don't watch Arsenal enough to, to fully understand why he has the field split up to the, how many did you say it was? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, eight different horizontal um, kind of sections. I don't watch Arsenal enough to to really fully understand what he's trying to cross by having the training environment set up like that. Um, I can take guesses, but, and I think with all these, we're somewhat taking a guess, but from an Arsenal perspective, it's a lot harder to, a lot harder to have a definitive kind of confident answer. Listen, as a Spurs fan, you're not missing much by not watching. <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, although they did they beating Chelsea was a bit of a nightmare for me. So hopefully Ronaldo turns up well this weekend. Um, so I guess the next bit onto this, because people can see this stuff on on Twitter and, and find that on social media, which is how is that and how does that then affect you when you're coming to do your game model or how you're when you're looking to have your principles of play, which is or philosophy of play, which are words that are banned around a lot, how does this type of work help you when trying to create those? 
Well, I think we all we all are going to take influences from all sorts of different people. Um, and I mean, I love, I'm a Liverpool supporter. Um, so I love watching obviously what Liverpool do. Um, I love how Guardiola plays and how his teams play. Um, so like from that perspective, it's, it's obviously interesting for me to kind of understand what they're doing and how they're doing things. Uh, and why they're doing things and try and take little bits and pieces from everyone um, to create something that I, that I like um, from a game model perspective and that I feel like I could implement um, with like, with the teams that I coach right now, I would maybe talk about, I certainly wouldn't talk about, you know, eight different horizontal sections of the field um, explicitly. But giving yourself kind of an idea of how you view the field um, gives you a better kind of way to communicate with your players about maybe if we go back to the risk and reward of, of a player dribbling at U13. Um, as a coach, if you understand how you view the field, that gives you um, a better way to give your player a decision-making framework of when they have that kind of freedom to, to dribble and take players on um, compared to when they should be thinking about the risk and reward of, of taking a player on. So I think giving yourself an, a better understanding of how you view the game and how you understand the field allows you to communicate more effectively what you want from your players in given situations. How much do you think it affects? Um, yeah, how much do you think defining the field or defining your program then affects the types of sessions you put on? So, um, in terms of yeah, if we're looking at clock, for example, very high pressing, heavy metal style of football and stuff, and he's talking about you know being able to attack as soon as you win it. How much do you think being able to define your field and say, well, actually, we want to play in these areas of the field because that allows us to counter more, then allows you when you're putting on a, a counter attacking session or you're putting on a pressing session allows you to say, well, we have to work in these areas because actually that mm. reflects back to what our game model is, which is we win the ball back and we go and score within however many seconds. How much yeah. transferability is there within that? I think in that specific example, I think there's a significant amount. Like you can, I use a lot of field manipulation in terms of shapes and sizes of my fields. Um, even at the younger age groups, even at the younger age groups, like, and some of that's not necessarily like a, a, a counter attacking, like it's not, it's not for a tactical reason, but like with my youngest teams, whenever we do like a game at the end, um, well, not whatever we do, but lots of times when we do a game at the end, I'll cut off the corners of the field from, and that's to impact their individual decision-making process when they're on the ball, because for whatever reason, there's a few players that have a habit of taking shots from the most ridiculous angles, right? So rather than 
continually like say to them, you know, that's a really tough, that's a really tough angle to take a shot from. Let's see if we can do something different with the ball. Um, if you take away that option for them by taking away the corners of the field, well, now they have to because it's they can they can no longer dribble to the corner of the field and try and shoot from there because that part of the field doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I use a lot of field manipulation at the younger age groups for individual decision making, but then at the older age groups, I use it a lot for like like you said, like tactical reasons and and collective decision making. Um, so I think if you're able to, I think field manipulation is, is a huge part of like a huge constraint that we can use to, um, apply, especially things like defining the field into our training sessions without necessarily, um, you know, talking about how we define the field. If we just put it out there, um, as the field shape, the players behaviors are impacted immediately so it's not always it doesn't always have to be you know i don't have to say to my players i don't really value um the wide areas especially like from the you know the tip of the 18 to the sideline i don't value that area if i just take that area away and not allow them to play in it that changes their behaviors without me without me saying it to them which i think is maybe even more effective. Yeah, and it, what I guess it, it also starts is if you say you devalue that area, when there are opportunities to play in there, they then won't because they're like, well, I might get yeah. I might get told off for this by going in this right. area where actually there might be circumstances where that's the right thing to do. You know, David Beckham yeah, sure. crossing from a wider area in behind, or Trent does it really well, see for Liverpool, yeah. to actually... By constraining them in the practice design, it allows you to get across what probably your preference is, but it also allows you on occasion to say, yeah, 100% the right decision. You've made the decision to try and curl it in there. It didn't quite come off, but the actual thought process behind it is correct. So that's fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think that's true. Like we need, as coaches, we, we can never say never do X, Y, and Z, right? Because every, there's, every single time a player's on the ball is a different, it's a different picture. Um, and so they need to, they need to make the best decision that they see in front of them. And sometimes it's not what, what we would want, but it is the best decision to make. So, yeah, I think that that speaks really true to that circumstance and in, in particular. And I, I um, my one of the kids is I, they always say, well, they used to say to me, oh, like goalkeepers don't take penalties or something like that. And I'd be like, you've got Chilavere. Chilavere from Paraguay used to take penalties and free kicks. And it either used to go in Rosehead or back of the net. <laughs> so that, that never say never type thing, I think is a really nice example because then you you tell them to go back and give them a YouTube and stuff. And then they come into training the next day and be like, you were right. He did literally just smash it. And it is, you can never say never um, in football. Um, one one last question for me, which is, um, who's the best player or coach you've worked with or against, and why? Best player or coach I've worked with or against, and why? Probably the more why. Um, a few years ago, um, probably like 
maybe five years ago at this point, I was working for a, a pretty small club in Massachusetts and um, a coach, we brought a coach of our visa from, um, from Ireland. His name's Alistair Harvey. And he worked, he worked at Cherry Orchard um, in Dublin, but he came over here because he just wanted a different, different change of environment and things like that. Um, but I think up until that point, I was very much, uh, I was very, idealistic in how I wanted my teams to play and um not that he changed that but he definitely like he definitely challenged me on that all the time because he would be like he he was much more pragmatic than me in terms of how he approached games um and his energy levels at training sessions was so high and, and had the players so engaged so like in that sense he um in that sense, he really pushed me from a coaching perspective within my training sessions, but also um, he didn't, again, he didn't change how I view the game in terms of like my ideas are still my ideas, but he definitely challenged me and made me have a more confident kind of view on my game because I had to think about it more because he was always kind of pushing me to to think about things differently and be like, well, if a longer ball's on, why wouldn't you play that longer ball? Well, I'd be like, well, because I it doesn't help progress us collectively and things like that. But he'd be like, all right, well, why do you need to pro progress collectively if your players can be one-on-one one -on -one with the goalkeeper? So he would constantly just probe and probe at me. Um, and it just, again, it made me more have to think about why I viewed the game the way I did more and have kind of a much more solid foundation to kind of my ideas um, than I had before. So he was probably the most significant person that I have worked with in terms of constantly, constantly putting me under pressure and challenging me. Uh, perfect. I think that's a really good answer. And those, you know, those sounding boards that do either re repeat back to you or mirror back to you what you what you're doing or challenge you are really important in, in creating a good coach so listen peter really appreciate your time and uh hope you can catch up again soon yeah absolutely thanks very much Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.